Well, that was awkward, wasn't it? <laughs> what I have just demonstrated for you was a long, seemingly unnecessary, awkward pause, during which you should have been asking yourself, what is wrong with this man? Show of hands, how many of you thought that that was a little strange? If you didn't think that was a little strange, it's time to stop drinking decaf. <clears throat> Remember that pause, I'll come back to it in a little bit. Before I get into the message this morning, I would like to express my gratitude and my thanks to you for the kindness that you are currently showing to my son, Parker. His employment here for the summer is without question, and I do not exaggerate, it is the biggest thing and it is the greatest thing that has ever happened in our lives. The daily reports that I get from him of your kindness and your generosity and your hospitality and the way that his heart has been enlarged by ministering to the young people here has us on the edge of our seats and we are thrilled with everything that is going on here. Pastor, I would like to thank you specifically for giving him an opportunity and entrusting him with such a large responsibility. And to the parents of the youth, I would like to thank you from the bottom of my heart and speaking for my wife as well for entrusting your teenagers uh, under his care for the summer. Uh, this is... Um, a tremendous thrill to be standing here um, in a church where, for the time being, my son is serving, looking out, seeing my family on Father's Day. Um, I don't know if I've ever been this happy. So I am thrilled to be here this morning, and I want to thank you also for the opportunity to let me bring the word this morning. If you would please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew and although we are not going to be looking in the book of Matthew this morning for our primary text, I would like to read a passage to you as we begin. And it's Matthew chapter 1, and it simply says in the first five and a half verses, the book of the genealogy, remember that word genealogy, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab, Aminadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon, as they say in the south, and up north we say Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse, and then we read in verse 6, and Jesse begot David the king. Today's message is going to come primarily from the book of Ruth, and we're going to be looking at the story, the love story of Ruth and Boaz, and it is arguably the greatest love story in the Old Testament. It occurs during the days of the judges, and just let me familiarize you with the story before we get into our actual text this morning. During the days of the judges, a famine rose in the little town of Bethlehem. And rather than to ride out the storm as God would have him to do, there was a man by the name of Elimelech who pushed the panic button, jumped ship, and moved his wife Naomi and his two adult sons, Malon and Chilion, 50 miles east across the Jordan River into the land of Moab. 
While he was there, his two sons married two pagan, unsaved women, Ruth and Orpha. And as the story goes, Elimelech and his two sons died, leaving three widows. Naomi, uh, after the death of her male family members, caught word that the famine back in Bethlehem had come to an end, and so she made her way back home after being in Moab for ten years. Both of her widowed daughters-in-law were with her, and initially they both escorted her on the trip. But along the way, she was able to convince Orpha that she should go home to her father's house and find a pagan husband among her family. Orpha was sad to say goodbye to her mother-in-law, but she realized that probably her mother-in-law, by worldly standards, was right. And so she did a U-turn and went back to Moab. And Naomi tried to convince Ruth to do the same thing. But she was not successful to do that. And this is where we read the passage, which is usually cited in most weddings, that Ruth quotes to her mother-in-law where she says, Entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For, every, for wherever you will go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. And where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. The Lord do so to me and more so also if anything but death parts you and me. In other words, dear mother-in-law, I'm with you and I'm with you to the very end. And with that, Ruth and Naomi make their way into Bethlehem. And as they are on the fringes of the town, the women of Bethlehem point out a woman that looks familiar. And they say, isn't that Naomi? And they approach her and they greet her and they are so glad to see her. At this point, Naomi displays her bitter heart and she shows her miserable attitude and says, don't call me Naomi any longer, but call me, call me bitter. This is at the beginning of the barley harvest. And by the way, it's ironic that Bethlehem means house of bread and this is the beginning of the barley harvest. Her outlook is bleak. And so she sends her daughter-in-law, Ruth, out to find a part-time job. And Providence finds Ruth in the field of Boaz, a near relative of Naomi's first husband, Elimelech. Boaz has a crush on Ruth. And he shows Ruth unusual kindness and provides her with steady work throughout the barley harvest and throughout the wheat harvest. But as the gleaning season was coming to a close... In one of the more curious and unusual chapters of the Bible, that is Ruth chapter 3, Ruth goes to Boaz at night at the threshing floor and proposes to him that he propose to her. And he does propose to her. Uh, Boaz expresses his desire to marry Ruth, but Boaz also points out that he himself is not next in line to marry Ruth. There's another man who was a closer relative to Elimelech, who had dibs on Ruth, if you will. And so, uh, so Boaz goes the next morning to the elders of the city at the city gate, and he asks this near relative if he wants to marry Ruth the Moabitess. And he quickly declines, realizing that it would convolute his inheritance. And with that, Ruth and Boaz are legally married, even though Ruth doesn't attend the wedding. Which brings us to our text today, Turn, please, to Ruth chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through the end of the chapter. Ruth chapter 4, 13 through the end of the chapter. So Boaz took Ruth 
and she became his wife. And when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative. And may his name, that is the name of the baby, be famous in Israel. And may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is better to you than seven sons has borne him. Verse 16. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom and she became a nurse to him, a dry nurse to him. Verse 17. Also the neighbor, neighbor women gave him a name saying, There is a son born to Naomi. They called his name Obed, and that word Obed means worshiper. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begot Hezron, Hezron begot Ram, and Ram begot Aminadab. Aminadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon, and Salmon begot Boaz, and Boaz begot Obed, Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David. Today's message is entitled, Babe of Ruth. You'll get home and you'll laugh. Babe of Ruth. And today I'd like to divide the text into two main points. Simply that Naomi was blessed by the baby. And then point number two, the baby was blessed by Naomi. was blessed by the baby. And then point number two, the baby was blessed by Naomi. And then afterward, I'll give you four points of application and then we will be finished. But first, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to open your book, the Bible. We acknowledge that this book is true and that it is profitable and that it is powerful, that it is without contradiction, without error, that it is living. Lord, we pray that as we open it this day and that we study it, Lord, that this would not just be a history lesson, but Lord, that this would be true life-giving information that would change us, that would cause us never to be the same. And so, Father, I pray for myself as I preach this morning. I pray that you would not allow me to stand up here by myself and to read words off of a page. But, Lord, I pray that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit. Lord, I am desperate this morning for your Holy Spirit to fill me and to give me the words to say, Lord, this is not just the point in the sermon where it is proper to pray, but, Lord, I am actually calling out to you, asking you, Lord, please, to fill me with your Spirit and enable me, dear Lord, to bring the Word in a way that will change the lives of the people. And Father, I pray for each person that is here today. I would pray, dear Lord, that you would please give them an interest in the subject. I pray that you would give them alertness. And Lord, I pray that your spirit would cause them, please, to be, Lord, to be changed as a result of hearing your word. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity. And now I ask, Lord, that you would do the work in Jesus' name. Amen. Point number one, Naomi was blessed by Obed. Now when you think about weddings, at a wedding celebration, it is customary to raise your glass in a toast and to honor the bride and groom. Seldom at a wedding or at a function similar to a wedding is the mother-in-law recognized. And even less frequently is the ex-mother-in-law toasted. Uh, those of you that are divorced and remarried, think about your second marriage to your current wife. 
Did you at your second wedding have any kind of a ceremonial blessing for your first mother-in-law? I'm guessing probably less than half. Well, think about it. Naomi is the ex-mother-in-law. And she receives a verbal blessing from the women of Bethlehem when the baby is born. Now, in order to appreciate who these women were, they were the women who recognized Naomi when she came back into town after having been absent for 10 years. And remember what Naomi said to them when Naomi first came back into town. Naomi said, I'm not Naomi. I I am bitter. My life is a wreck. I I left full and now I come back empty. She doesn't acknowledge Ruth. She is not thankful to God for Ruth's companionship and for Ruth's commitment and for Ruth's loyalty. Uh, No, not at all. She's basically saying, oh yeah, life goes on long after the thrill of living is gone. I have no reason to go on living. Really, life has lost all its thrill for me. I'm not Naomi. I'm bitter. Then the story takes place, and we don't hear from these women of Bethlehem again until after the baby is born. Notice again in verses 14 and 15 the blessing that these women give to Naomi, not to the mother, not to the father, but to Naomi. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative. And may his name, that is the name of the baby, be famous in Israel. And may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is better to you than seven sons has borne him. We know that they were watching the entire story unfold, the love story of Ruth and Boaz. And the irony of their blessing here is that their speech completely contradicts everything that Naomi said about herself earlier. You see, a year or so earlier, life had no meaning except bitterness for Naomi. Now something has changed. What is it that has turned Naomi from a bitter woman into a blessed woman? It's a baby. It's a baby. And I know, happy Father's Day from personal experience, that a baby can do that. There's a new kid in town, Obed. This baby is going to be a rich source of joy and comfort for Naomi in her remaining years. Now, I unfortunately this morning cannot speak from personal experience because I really never knew my grandparents. My one grandfather on my father's side, I never met. My mother's father uh, was bedridden for the entire time that I knew him. He died when I was very young. Uh, My father's mother died before I finished kindergarten, and my mother's mother was buried on the day that I was born. So I didn't really have a life of experiencing the joy of being with my grandparents. But although I cannot speak from personal experience, I can tell you this. Grandchildren can play a great role in bringing delight to their grandparents. But the principle goes beyond biological grandchildren. You see, Obed technically was not even related to Naomi by blood. Get the picture. Her Moabite daughter-in-law married a man who was her deceased husband's second or third cousin. That's not considered a blood relation blood relation, even by West Virginia standards. The baby was not related to Naomi at all. 
Nevertheless, this baby is going to give this elderly woman a spark of life. I have an application this morning for the children. Children, I hope you know that you can have a God-honoring ministry simply by taking the time, not just with your blood grandfather and grandmother, but by extending yourself to those that are a little advanced in years by respecting them, taking time to speak to them, hugging them, shaking hands with them, talking with them. And this is what will please the Lord. You know, James defines what a really good Christian is, not in terms of the money we, re- we give or the Bible verses that we recite, but James says in 127 that pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself one spotted, unspotted from the world. You see, over the years... In my ministry, I've had the privilege of doing nursing home ministry. And I've noticed how the presence of a small child can precipitate a smile on the faces of the residents. Obed, that baby, brought a smile to the face of Naomi. But now here's point number two. Notice also that this was a two-way street. Naomi was a blessing to Obed. Verse 16 and half of verse 17. Then Naomi took the child, laid him on her bosom, and she became a nurse to him. Also, the neighbor women gave him, and that is Obed, a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi. They called his name Obed, which is worshiper. My mother's sister, who is now 94 years old, was unable to have children. She's in a nursing home right now. She is, without question, the single strongest influence in my life for Christ. To this day, at age 94, sometimes in the middle of the night, I will call her when I need special prayer. Throughout my life, whenever I have needed prayer, I've picked up the phone, or if I didn't have a phone, I've told someone, pick up the phone and call Aunt Flo and have her pray. When I was a little boy... I would go to her house to play. Now, she had no children. And when I would hear my parents pull up to pick me up, I would hide underneath the sofa and I would exhort my aunt to lie and say that I wasn't there so that I could continue to stay at my aunt's house. I loved her. I love her with all of my heart. She never had children. We're not sure how long Naomi lived after this. But as long as she lived, she had a son, and she had an influence on this son. Now, I want to say to those of you that are a bit older, let me encourage you to move away from the conventional American mindset, which says this, I have raised my kids, I have done my work, I have paid my dues, I'm finished, I'm retired. No, not according to Scripture. You have much to contribute to future generations by loving and caring for and imparting wisdom and influencing little ones. Even as my Aunt Florence did for me, even as Naomi did for Obed. And that brings us to the end of the book of Ruth. 
In fact, all that's left in this book is just a series of names. It's called a genealogy. Here in Ruth chapter 4, from the middle of verse 17 through the end of verse 22, we have a record of 10 Jewish names stretching from Perez to David. And that's it. And as we look at this close to the book, we have to realize and we have to acknowledge as Christians that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable, but really, does it not leave you scratching your head a little bit? What are we supposed to do with this list of names? I mean, they are accurate historically, and they will, if we are interested in prophecy, link together Judah to David. You remember that Judah, the son of Jacob, Israel, was the one to whom it was prophesied in Genesis 49.10 that the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes to him, that is to Christ, shall be the obedience of the people. So we see that the lion of the tribe of Judah comes out of this line and so we see prophetically that this has value. But as useful as the names may be for historians and for those that chronicle the fulfillment of prophecy, there has to be more to it than that. I mean, doesn't it on the surface seem just a little bit disappointing? After all, this is the greatest love story in all the Old Testament. This is the greatest chick flick, if you will, in all of the Old Testament. You're sitting there in the theater. This story unfolds before your eyes. And at the end of the story, you hear so-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so the end. Please pick up your popcorn bag and walk out. That's a little bit disappointing. So what we have to do is we have to ask ourselves, why does the author shift from an artfully crafted romance novel to a genealogy as a conclusion? And we have to ask ourselves, is there any connection between the story itself and the genealogy which follows? I would say yes. We also need to ask ourselves, can we look at this genealogy and apply it? Is there anything we can do with it? And I would say yes. In fact, in the time that remains, I want to share four truths or four points of application which are very practical from the genealogy. Here's the first. Little things can make a big difference. Little things in life can make a big difference. Let me explain why I say that. The story of Ruth takes place from beginning to end in about a dozen years. And the bulk of the story takes place over the course of about one year. The genealogy, however, runs 700 years. It goes from Genesis 38 all the way through 1 Chronicles 29. Now, when you add the story of Ruth with the genealogy that follows and you blend the two together, it shows us that the small, seemingly insignificant matters of day-to-day -day life are actually playing an essential role in the big picture. And here's why I say this. Let's take one small example from the story of Ruth. We read in chapter 2 that the women have just moved back to Bethlehem. They really don't have any financial wherewithal. And so Ruth does something. She gets up one morning and she goes out to look for work. That in and of itself is not a cataclysmic event. 
But it turns out to be colossal. Because if she doesn't go to work, she doesn't meet Boaz. And if she doesn't meet Boaz, she never has Obed. And if she doesn't have Obed, then there's no Jesse. And if she doesn't have, and if Jesse's not born, then there's no David. And if there's no David, then there's no Davidic kingship. And if there's no Davidic kingship, then there's no Christ. And if there's no Christ, then there's no salvation. So something that started off as simple as a woman rolling out of bed and going to work ends up being a piece in the puzzle which brought salvation to you and me. At the beginning of this sermon, I stood in front of you awkwardly as a man who'd never preached a sermon before, and I simply just paused. And you said to yourselves, let's go. Come on. Are we going to beat the Methodists to lunch? Let's go. Well, guess what? Life is filled with pauses. In fact, life, for the most part, is nothing but pauses. And by pauses, here's what I mean. Those moments in life which are boring, routine, uneventful, times when nothing meaningful seems to be happening, times which are dull, times of silence, everyday routines, which from our perspective seem to make us think that we're in sort of a holding pattern. And what we long for are those dramatic, life-defining moments that shape our futures. Uh, We are waiting for those earth-shattering events when the skies will open and God's voice will come and say, here's the way, walk ye in it. But guess what? Life's pretty much just rolling out of bed and going to work. Landers, is that that little guy's name? You know what life is pretty much going to be? Changing diapers. Abel Lee, is that that other little girl's name? Life is pretty much just going to be wiping her nose for a while. That's what life is going to be. And we're waiting for these earth-shattering events when in reality the future currently is being shaped through the drab days, through the diapers, through the runny noses, through the dishes, through the perfunctory routine of getting up and going to work. These pauses where it seems like nothing is happening. Actually, in God's great scheme, big things are happening. Did Ruth know that when she simply got out of bed and went to work that day to look for a part-time job, that she would meet the man who would marry her, who would put her in the line of the Messiah? No, she didn't know that. Even today in your life, when you perceive that life is boring, I want you to know that God is working all things together for the good of those that love him. That God has a lock, L-O-C-K, on all things. That is, he limits, orders, controls, and knows all things. And even the slightest movement in our lives is providentially directed by him. And this morning we sang, great is thy faithfulness. God is faithful even in the little mundane events of life to be faithful. And so we, in response to that, need to have faith to work our way through life right now. Let me give you an illustration and not to belabor the point, but I want you to see how God works. God gives us four children, the oldest of which is Parker. We're living in New York City. 
All we know is that we want to get him out of New York City. How do we do that? Anna's parents live in Rome, Georgia. So we say to ourselves, let's send Parker to Rome, Georgia for his senior year. Now, did we know that when we packed his bags, that Parker was going to meet Scott Ogle? No offense, we didn't know Scott Ogle existed. And Scott didn't know when he met Parker that in a little over a year, he would be at Abner Creek Baptist Church. All Parker was doing was a simple, mundane, going through the motion, honoring God act of looking for a good youth group. That's all he was doing. And so he committed himself to be there. A simple, everyday event. But as it turned out, God had a plan that would lead him here. And again, I express to you my gratitude and my blessing and the joy that he is serving here. This is the biggest thing that has ever happened in our family. And the best thing that has ever happened in our family. And how did it all begin? It began by him walking into a youth group and meeting you. You never know that the little events in life are going to lead to the biggest and the best things. The 12-year story of Ruth spelled out over 80 verses linked to a 700-year genealogy which is covered by only five verses show us that the day-to-day -day events in life are really big in God's perspective. Which brings me to the second point of application and that is this. This genealogy, so-and-so begot so-and-so, helps us define the word famous. Look back in verse 11. Here's where the elders of the city are blessing or praying for Boaz. All the people were at the gate. They're making it publicly. And the elders, what do the elders say? We are witnesses. The Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, the two who built the house of Israel, and may you, Boaz, prosper in Ephratah and be famous in Bethlehem. So the elders of Bethlehem pray for him and they say, we want you to be famous in this little hometown of ours, O little town of Bethlehem. But later in the passage, as I read earlier, the women of Bethlehem pray for Obed. And I won't read it again, but you'll remember that in verse 14, they pray for Obed that he will be famous, but not just in Bethlehem, but that he will be famous in Israel. So it goes from local fame to national fame. Were their prayers answered? Yes and no. Yes in the sense that Boaz and Obed were famous locally and nationally, but no in the sense that it wasn't just that. The fame which is spoken of here went way beyond that. The fame that I'm referring to is historical and universal, and I would even say eternal fame. Why? Because both of these men have their names written in the Word of God, which lives and abides forever. Now, think with me eschatologically for a second. Let's just say for the sake of argument that the Lord doesn't come back for another thousand or another 10,000 years. We don't know when he's coming back. Maybe he'll come back tonight. Maybe he'll come back 10,000 years from now. We don't know. We really don't know. Let's say for the sake of argument the Lord doesn't come back for another 10,000 years. Do you realize that there will be billions of people living on the earth at that time who will have no idea 
who Michael Jordan was or who Donald Trump was or, or who John Lennon was or who Paris Hilton was or, or what 9-11 was. They won't know any of those things. But you know what they will know? They will know who Boaz and Obed were because the word of God will live and abide forever long after Donald Trump is forgotten. Fame is not defined by who has their name in the newspaper. Fame is defined not in terms of this lifetime or this puny little planet we call Earth. Fame is defined as eternal and in the heavens. Do you realize that the most insignificant person in this congregation with the most limited influence is eternally because they are related to and linked to and will be with Christ, they are more famous right now than anyone that is unsaved and sitting in the Oval Office. Fame is linked to Christ. Yes, their prayers were answered, exceeding abundantly above that which they would even ask or think. Here's application point number three. Happy Father's Day. This is, this is the main point this morning. Gentlemen, ladies, you can apply this as well, but gentlemen, the way that you live today, particularly as you raise your children, the way that you live today will impact future generations long after you are in eternity. Do you remember the movie Back to the Future? 25 years ago, Michael J. Fox. And do you remember at the end of the story when he finally gets transported back to the year 1985? And do you remember at the end when he walks in and everything has changed and, and suddenly... Christopher Lloyd in the DeLorean comes zooming in and his hair sticking out and he has the crazy wacky professor outfit on and he walks in and he says, Marty, Marty, we got to go. And it's, what is it? It's, it's, what, what he says, you're, you, you're fine, but your kids, Marty, your kids are a mess. And they jump in the DeLorean and boom, they zoom off and you know that there's going to be a sequel. One of the greatest movies of all time, particularly, you know, the, the Johnny B. Good. But that's another point. The point is, this movie basically says you can do time travel, you can go back, and you can make corrections if you don't do it right the first time. As great as that movie was, folks, there are no time machines. There are no flux capacitors. You can't go back and do a redo. How you live today is the only contribution that you can make to future generations. And when we look at this man, Boaz, Boaz loved God, and he raised Obed to do the same thing. Well, how do we know that? The reason we know that is because Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David. And by the time that we meet David, he's only a young teenager, but he is already what? A man after God's own heart. Well, how in the world did David become a man after God's own heart? Well, primarily, David becomes a man after God's own heart through the doctrine of God's sovereignty and election that God put his love upon him, called him to himself, and God formed his heart in that way. But the means by which God did that 
was through David having a godly father, Jesse. And how did Jesse become a godly man? He became a godly man through Obed. And how did Obed become a godly man? It was through his father, Boaz. Happy Father's Day. Are you raising godly children? Are you loving your wife? Do your children know that you love your wife? Do you love your children? Dad, do you pull them to yourself and do you kiss them on the forehead and do you tell them that you're delighted with them? Do your children see you reading the book? Do your children see you living the book? Do your children see you consistently with a gospel emphasis being real Christians? See, the question today is not whether or not you're going to have an influence on, per, on future generations. You will have an impact on future generations. The question is, what kind of an influence are you going to have? And when we look at this man, Boaz, he never could have imagined what his influence would have been. In fact, when you consider this man, Boaz, he never read verses 18 through 22 of this. He was long dead. He never read what we read earlier, Matthew 1, 1 through 6, the genealogy which led to Christ. He never even met David. He never read John 3, 16 or Romans 6, 23. But he contributed in a significant way to all of those things and in many more ways simply by loving Ruth and raising a godly son. This is a book that my wife has on her shelf. I'm glad she moved it up to her bedroom and does not leave it laying around downstairs like she used to. It's called Marriage to a Difficult Man. <laughs> this is the story of the marriage or the uncommon union between Jonathan and Sarah Edwards. You remember Jonathan Edwards is chiefly responsible for the first great awakening in America in the 1740s. He is without question the greatest theologian that ever walked on American soil, the greatest philosopher, and he's the instrument that God used to bring about the first great awakening in New England, Northampton, Massachusetts. A study was done around the turn of the century of the descendants of Jonathan Edwards. There was also a study done in 1900 by this same man, of a family called the Jukes family. Now, let me tell you about the Jukes family. The Jukes family, they were able to trace down 1,200 of Mr. Jukes' descendants. Of them, they were only able to find 20 who were gainfully employed. The others were either criminals or lived on welfare. By contrast, they were able to trace down 1,400 of Jonathan and Sarah Edwards' descendants. Here are the descendants of Jonathan and Sarah Edwards. This is only as of 1900, so 110 years ago. 13 college professors, I'm sorry, 13 college presidents, 65 professors, 100 lawyers, 30 judges, 66 doctors. 80 holders of public office, including governors of three states and a vice president of the United States. 
All of the men held college degrees. The women were repeatedly described as great readers or of high intellect. Family members wrote over 135 books. They edited 18 journals. They entered the ministry in platoons and sent out 100 missionaries overseas, as well as stocking many missions boards with lay trustees. And the, and the list is even longer than that. Time would fail me to read of it. But do you know that Jonathan and Sarah Edwards, when they came together, did not know the influence that their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren would have for generations to come. And in the same way, Boaz did not know when he married Ruth that ultimately there would be an impact on future generations, not only through King David, but ultimately through our Lord Jesus Christ. Men, how you live today is going to impact generations to come. Finally, and most importantly, the genealogy linked to the end of the Ruth Boaz story shows us that the gospel is of first importance. In fact, I would argue that the genealogy is more important than the story. And I would argue that the most important word in the book of Ruth is the last word. It is the word David, and here's why. Because the story, the narrative, the kinsman redeemer explains how one man, Boaz, redeemed one woman. Well, that's all well and good. But the genealogy points out how one man, Jesus, redeemed an innumerable host of hell-deserving sinners by his precious blood from every tribe and tongue and nation. The love story of Ruth and Boaz shows that one man was willing and able to redeem Ruth. But in the gospel, Jesus is both willing and able to save our souls. Hebrews 7.25 He is able also to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. In the story of Boaz, the kinsman redeemer had to be related to Ruth in order to redeem her. And in the gospel, Jesus had to be related to us. And herein lies the greatest love story you will ever hear. That the second person of the Trinity left the glory and the splendor and the worship of angels to come to earth and to take on human flesh and to be born not as Abel Lee into a home where I'm guessing she was born in a hospital and not like Landers where he was able to sit in an air-conditioned building, but he came and he was born in a manger. And he was despised and rejected of men and a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Here's the greatest love story that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. I don't know all of you. In fact, I don't know the majority of you, but those of you that, know, that I know, I like. Those of you that I know, I would even say through the Holy Spirit, I love you. But I'm going to tell you something. I will gladly give my son to come from New York to serve you and to minister to you. But you know what I would not do? I would not give my son to come and die for you. And you are my friends. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
The love story is not Ruth and Boaz. The ultimate love story is God looking down on wretched, hell-deserving sinners like you and me and sending his son to be crushed on the cross in our place. And Jesus died for sinners. And so I say to you on this Father's Day, do you know the love of the Father? Have you been redeemed? Not just do you understand the picture of redemption in Ruth, but have you been redeemed? You say, how do I become redeemed? Well, it's as simple as ABC. First of all, you need to acknowledge. Not just intellectually, but you need to acknowledge deep within your heart that you are a hell-deserving sinner and that you cannot save yourself. And you need to not just know this, but you need to feel this deeply in your soul that you are undone. Secondly, you need to believe. Not just believe in that I believe that Jesus existed, but to believe that he died for you. And there upon the cross, he paid for all of your sins and that he rose from the dead. And finally, you need to call upon the name of the Lord for whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that word Lord means that he's your boss. My experience and observation and counsel to Parker concerning Christianity primarily in the South is, is this. And I would say no offense, but I, but I really do mean offense by this. It's an offense which will perhaps save you from hell and cause you to go to heaven. Here's the offense. Christianity in the South has been reduced to walk an aisle, pray a prayer, live like the devil, be told that you're going to heaven, when in reality, Jesus, who should know something about salvation, says that not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but those who do the will of my Father which are in heaven. If you don't love Christ, if you're not living for Christ, you're not going to heaven. Regardless of what your Sunday school teacher has told you when you prayed the prayer and signed the card. Whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, that means he's your boss. That means that he's in control. You're not saved by good works. You're saved by faith alone, in Christ alone. But if you are saved, there's going to be a change. Paul wrote, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. How do I become saved? How do I become redeemed? The gospel is of first importance. Here's how you become saved. Acknowledge that you are a sinner with deep conviction in your heart. Believe. Believe that Jesus paid that price on the cross and that he rose again and call upon the name of the Lord. Turn the keys over to him. The love story of Ruth and Boaz is a beautiful story, but the greatest love story is the story of Christ. Without this genealogy, Ruth and Boaz mean no more than Joni and Chachi or Fred and Ginger or Romeo and Juliet or Jay-Z and Beyonce. It's, it's just, they're just nice love stories. But those love stories can't remove sin. Have you been saved? This genealogy points to Christ. Father in heaven, thank you for the honor, the privilege this day of opening your book, the Bible, presenting, Lord, the gospel. And I want to pray on this Father's Day, particularly 
for the men, Lord, that they would stand up and be men of God, that they would lead their families well, even as Boaz did, even as Obed did, even as Jesse did. Father, I want to pray for all of us that we today would have a fresh sense of thankfulness that you gave your son in the greatest love story to die in our place. Father, I want to pray specifically this day for Landers and for Abel Lee. Lord, I want to pray that there would be a day when each of these precious babies would grow into an understanding of what it means to be converted. Lord, that you'd have mercy upon their souls and that you would save them. But Lord, I want to pray for these two babies this day. Lord, not just that you would save them, but Lord, I want to pray that you would use them to be famous. Not famous in the eyes of the world, but famous in terms of eternity. God, that these two precious babies would grow up to be adults of influence and influence people for the kingdom of God. Father, we thank you for this time we've had to worship you in your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want us to do something a little different this morning in that as Ethan leads us in a, in a verse today, I want to give you an opportunity to just stay seated right where you are and just reflect on the message. No emotion. We're not trying to talk you into anything at all. We just want you to reflect on what you've heard. And then after some time, Ethan will direct you to stand and respond to the message in however the Lord has led you. During the whole time, I'm going to be down here at the front, not standing here, but over here. If you need help calling on the name of the Lord, then I'll be here. You come and, and, and I'll help you do that. If you just want to come and just pray, these steps are open for you to do, do that. But spend some time reflecting on what you've heard and then respond as he's led.
this next verse in the old like a cross, stained with blood, so divine. Let's sing together. been a good day in the house of the Lord. Amen. Amen. I want to invite you uh, to come by afterwards. I'm going to ask Ed and Anna and the family, if you all will, uh, all the kids to stand here at the front, including Parker, because a lot of our people would love to come by and just meet you. Uh, Parker has, if you've enjoyed Parker already, would you just let it be known? And with, with Parker, it's not so much enjoying him as much as the gospel that he stands on, the gospel that he preaches, the, the high standard of living for God and his glory that he's, he's showing to our students. And so, Parker, we love you and we appreciate you. And the thing about Ed is, I know this uh, for a fact from what I've watched in him, uh, there was no questioning his message this morning because I've seen him live it. And, uh, Ed, I love you. love your family. And so we're, we're so happy to have you. Uh, we want to be praying this week, Saturday, will be a, a very big day for Ronnie and for Starlet, and uh, they're getting married Saturday, and so if you'd like to attend that, Woods Chapel, 11 o'clock on Saturday, be praying for them uh, as they start their life together, and uh, and then you'll want to uh, to come back Wednesday uh, this week and, and pray with the body of Christ. I'm going to ask Scotty Stone, if he would, to come and to uh, close us out with a word of prayer. And then you'll come by and, uh, and meet the Moors. Let's pray. Lord, I'm so grateful to be here in this church today and to hear such a great message. Lord, that we've been so many people that I love and care for, people that care for me and my family. 
Lord, just hold us tight. Pull us together. Have us to do as you would have us do for your glory. We're so thankful, Lord. Just thankful to be here today, Lord.